Hello, Shambles producer Trent, back at the top of the episode, which I'm sure you're all delighted about being clamouring to hear more from me at the top, no doubt. I'm just here to give you a quick reminder to listen right to the end of the episode to find out which of our lovely Patreon supporters has won the box of books this week. We are still waiting to hear from uh, two of our box of books winners, being Sandy May and Rebecca Hilda. If you are either of those people and a Patreon supporter to the Book Shambles podcast, please get in touch. We've got prizes we'd like to give you. And if you'd like to become a Patreon or make a one-off donation through PayPal, uh, or if you just want to go there and catch up on past episodes, view reading lists and all that sort of stuff, obviously you can do that at, it's obviously not obviously, or I wouldn't be telling you because you'd already know. Or maybe it is obvious and I've got no need to tell you. But anyway, it's uh, covering bases is what's happening right now. Uh, And I should also mention the Cosmic Shambles live tour, which is heading to Australia and New Zealand next year with Robin and Josie and uh, Helen Chersky and Lucy Green and Matt Parker and lots of other comedians and musicians and scientists. And we will be going to Sydney and Melbourne and Perth in Australia and Wellington, Auckland and Christchurch in New Zealand. And if you go to CosmicShamblesLive.com, you can get all the dates and the venues and buy tickets and everything uh, to do with the tour is on that site. Uh, so for now, enjoy this week's episode with Robin, Josie and our special guest, John Dowie. Hello, welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles. Um, our guest today is John Dowie and we're having a nice time. We've got a little... We've got a little fun. Was that you sort of participating but silently? That's the uh, that's the audience at home. When you hear the name John Dowie, click. Not John Turning Dowie again. He's on everything. If you're not <laughs> seeing him on Celebrity Squares with Warwick Davis, he's, he's doing Warwick. Made in Chelsea again. Um, making I know a someone human from Made in Chelsea soup. who's absolutely delightful. I know so, you do, because yeah. you're part of Bear Grylls Island's community. Oh, yeah. um, John Dowie, uh, well, God, we haven't called anyone a broadcaster in this series. We, oh. always, we always used to say, we're joined by the poet, comedian, writer and broadcaster, John Dowie. Um, <laughs> when did I broadcast it? I didn't broadcast it. doesn't matter. Literally, you only, the mere act of being on this now means, because it's one of the shortcuts people always do. And, okay. No one's allowed to just be a writer or a poet or a comedian or anything. They always have to be... Uh, we're joined by uh, equestrian and broadcaster. <laughs> um, so well, I, th- I thought we'd start straight off, in fact, with... Well, I wanted to get a little bit of your, your history as a kind of writer and a performer because you are... And I know you'll find this embarrassing, but you are, you know, revered by quite a few people. I know you don't think you are, but you are. You are Do you revere me? Um, I revere you. All right. You are revered. And, and it's a lot of secret revering, though. That's been the problem with your revering, is people want to revere you, think, but they do it quietly. I but, think nobody's ever asked me to my face whether or not I revere them before. <laughs> it's quite exciting. I'm, I'm right. you, you could start making a list now of the people that you don't revere, and then when, when you meet them, you'll be saying, no, I don't revere you at all. No, <laughs> you're on my non-reverence list. <laughs> yes. But you, you are part of uh, quite a small group of people who've seen that before what was seen, uh, you know, the, 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 the alternative comedy in 1979, whenever we want to put that date, yeah. there were a group of people working in clubs, and you as, as a stand-up were... Because some people have said that the, for them, the definition of alternative comedy... Uh, was not necessarily about the values beyond the value of the fact that it became about the person who it, it was written by that person. It came yeah. from them. It was not a collection of jokes, and it was not written by someone else. That that was one of the important things. It was their worldview. 
And so when did you, when, when does that start for you? Oh, it's hard to say that because, well, I mean, I started performing in 1969 and one of the things that inspired me to do so was a Spike Milligan play. And people talk up in their, people who are now in their 70s always talk about what it was like in the 50s when they heard Elvis Presley for the first time, as if this is of inf information that's of interest to us, you know. First time I heard Elvis. And then, you know, they all started, all of them started after that, Roddy Donegan and people. When I saw Spike Milligan, that's the effect it had on me. And the reason why I don't find much interest in this alternative comedy label and stuff is because the people that I admired when I started working were people who just did what they wanted to do. Mm. Ivor Cutler was around then. Ron Geeson, that people have forgotten his performance skills. See, I don't know Ron Geeson. Ivor really? Cutler, weirdly. It's a nice thing. One of the things that I love about doing this is that obviously the people at home listen to it over, you know, uh, it, it, perhaps weekly or whatever. But there are certain names that on certain days they keep coming up. Mm. So just before you uh, came in, we were talking to Noel Fielding, mm. who brought up Spike Milligan. Mm. And yesterday we were talking about the beauty of uh, watching Ivor Cutler live, where the majority mm. of the yeah. show was him moving between his harmonium and his notebook. Oh, you love Ivor Cutler. Uh, yeah, I saw it. Don't go and see him twice in one week huh. because it'll blow, it'll blow all, your, uh, all your idolatry away. The second time I went to see him at the... Uh, I mean, I've seen him a lot of times over the years. But I, twice in one week is a mistake because I went to see him at that theatre in Kilburn, the tricycle. Saw him on the Tuesday, corpsing a little bit here. Oh, this poem, even I, the author, find it funny. You know, went to see him on Thursday, corpsing here, even this bit, I, the author, find it. It's like, you showbiz tart, it's just a show, it's just an act, you know. The humble Ivor Cutler and the harmonium, you know, he's... So he's got, and the then most... Ivor enters in a humble fashion. <laughs> <laughs> but that is one of the most shocking things, I think, for people who, when... Because I remember seeing that, I remember we, going... We thought you were making it up as yeah. you went along. Yeah. And also, I think you, you sort of, with people like Ivor Cutler, you want to believe they're from another planet almost. So you mm. want to believe that they, they don't have stagecraft, even though you really respect them. Mm. You just, you want this sort of image of this real outsider artist. And then you forget that, like, outsider artists are still artists yeah. and they understand all that and, you know. Did you ever find that as a problem as a, as a stand-up where, because I sometimes get worried where I try and make sure that every show has a reasonable number of differences, that it doesn't start in the same place no. and with luck it starts with a thought that has been recent from since the last night. And then sometimes in the middle of a tour, there is a point where what started off as being a scatty selection of ideas has coagulated yeah. into something. And I, and I think, ah, oh, uh, there must be, I have to, especially if you see some of the same person in the audience. Did you ever find yourself thinking, I, this is all going fine, but I know I did this last night. Well, it wasn't so much that. It was when my, I, was, I had a relationship for a short period of time and we were driving along in her car and she started doing my act. I thought, oh, Jesus, if she can do it, well, the, what's the point of my, I've better start, had to write another one. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, As but, opposed yeah, to nowadays, people would go, this is fantastic news. The John Dowie brand is now not wedded merely to John Dowie, but a, like, like a wimpy bar. It's there hit can the be Dowies everywhere. <laughs> if I had enough material, you could get one for the price of, a, of two. Or no, two for the price of one. <laughs> Buy one, get one free, but I haven't I've only ever had the one. You said, before we get to Ron Geeson, you said about Spike Milligan seeing on stage. Was that something like Oblomov? Or? No, it was the bed sitting room, which was... Uh, and as you just said, I saw that play. It was touring around the West Midlands. I saw it once. It, I just went on a whim to Wolverhampton. That's the only reason to go to Wolverhampton on a whim. I love Wolverhampton. Yeah, yeah. And Warsaw. 
And then I saw this play, and like I said, you know, first time I saw Elvis. So I just followed the play around to all the different Midlands towns. And like you were just saying, there was always something in the play that wasn't in it the day before. You know, he'd always, I mean, some of his ad-libs were carefully rehearsed. But, but, every, but things would happen. There was one show, a, a matinee in Coventry, and Bill Kerr was in it. And he had to play, he had to do this routine to this audience. There was about 20 old age pensioners and me. Uh, who is now an old age pensioner? And then, as Bill Kerr was struggling to get through this routine, to this ghastly wall of silence, Spokeman comes on stage with a cup of tea and a sandwich. How are you doing, Bill? Are you enjoying the show? Having a good time, are you? What do you think of the audience? Lovely audience, Spike. You know, all this kind of stuff. And I was sitting there thinking, this is my gift. Nobody else knows what's happening apart from me, you know, yeah. other than people on stage, obviously. And so that was, and that was like I say, it, it, it was inspirational. And it is, a, I mean, it's, of course, you can now see, you can still see the film, which has... film has nothing to do with what I saw. It still has that delightful thing of, of Ralph Richardson saying in such impassioned ways that the shame of turning into a bed-sitting room. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, for those who don't know bed-sitting room, uh, one, you should, and, and you can still get it. I think you can still get the book as well, which is basically the transcript of what was meant to have happened, but probably didn't happen. Well, yeah, well, you see, the play script, I, I did have a copy, and I'd thought about buying one recently, but again, you know... The play script was what Spartan Lugan wrote with the guy who had the idea, which was John Antrobus. The play that we all saw had nothing to do with that script whatsoever. I mean, I've read it, and it, it wasn't what you saw on stage. None of it was. And the film, OK, I mean, it's a different thing, medium, obviously. But, but you know, I'm not, I'm not having the memories of my play ruined by this damn film, you know, as good as it might or, might or not be. You know, I want to remember the play that I saw 27 times. You know. I still, I can still remember lines from it. The open, how do you start a comedy show? Is the question I often wonder about. How do you start a comedy theatre show? Spike Milligan started with the piano player, Alan Clare, being led on stage by an usherette with a torch. When he sits down, the usherette says, are you sure you've got the right seat? <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the ways you start. <laughs> Mad Magazine did a show on Broadway, which I only ever read about. And the, uh, the curtain's there, you know, and the murder orchestra, you know, playing in the pit, and the curtain rises, then it stops. All you can see are people's feet waiting to get going, you know. And then <laughs> the curtain comes down again, orchestra plays again, goes the curtain, and the feet go with it. Huh. And then there's a bare, sta bare stage, and, some, and then the show starts. You know, you think, oh, that's how you start a comedy show. Also, the, I like the um, effort to output ratio of that, like the amount of things that need to be sorted to pull that off. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God, astonishing. That's why I saw Groundhog Day, the musical, last night oh, that yeah. Tim Minchin has, has, has written the, the, uh, the, the musical lyrics for. And that had, obviously that is, you can't improvise within that. No. But the amount of imagination within a musical to go, how can we do that? Well, oh, that's yeah. going to involve mine, that's going to involve dance, that's going to involve stupid little models. So you're seeing a, what is going to be a great big Broadway musical, but there's no shame in going. And then a little tiny yeah. model car I in like a distance. And I think there's a lot of that, that that excites me about some of the theatre, which is almost mainstream theatre now, is they've taken stuff from where we can still have that, from what used to be dicking around in pub theatre, yeah. is suddenly on a big stage. I, I, yeah, finding new ideas and ways, new ways of doing things is one of the reasons why you do it in the first place, isn't it? You don't want to go out there and say, well, we'll just learn the lines, dot bump into the furniture, do it, and then go to the pub. I mean, I mean the, part, the pleasure of doing that kind of work is thinking of ways of doing things like might be impossible. Mm. Well, in stand-up, I think it's interesting. There was a certain in some of the, the the kind of club world where it became. This was every single night was Misa Lou, 
uh, that piece of guitar music that was uh, most famously used in Pulp Fiction. That, that's the warm-up music. That means they know it's going to start. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome. There, and then you always have to go on after the act and go, Let's run, that was John Dowie! And all of those things. And then when you're given the freedom to go into your own world and you go, well, we don't necessarily have to have a point where they know it started. You yeah. can be wandering around the stage while they're coming in. Yeah. I love and then you can that. start talking. Yeah. And then there might be a point where... But I think that's a... Uh, so this was... When you were going to see uh, Spike Milligan in the bed sitting room uh, and, and Ivan dinosaurs. Cutler, would you... The trilobites, I like Oh, them. I see. And, I see. Uh, but, this is not how I feel about this. Okay. But were you... Was, was comedy something that you really did adore from... Not, you know, the, no, not at all. Not at all. I mean... Making the teacher angry in the classroom was you know, that was all, that was all good and fine, and laughing with your mates was all good and fine. But I, well, I can't remember seeing anything. I mean, obviously Tony Hancock, but I kind of I think I probably appreciated him later when I was older. I'm not sure really, but when I was a child, I mean, no, nothing. And I was talking about this is when I was 16, when I saw Spike Milligan. Really I was 16. And so uh, that was that was my introduction to seeing a comedy. I mean, I've been to the circus with my mum and dad. And yeah. they left me there, huh. as they do. Um, but no, I'd never seen anything, anything at all. So it was Elvis, you know. Um, that kind of, it blows my mind because I think it's just not possible to avoid it in that same way well, now. Well, it's not my fault. No, no, of course, of course. But like, it, it's, it, but that's really like, it, it, interesting. Well, one of the reasons when it, I, sorry to interrupt. No, no. One of the reasons why, when I stopped performing stand-up, when it was an, an accurate thing to do, it's one of the reasons why, well, you know, it's a f so common, isn't it? I mean, there's so many of them out there now, and it's not as though there's a need for it. You know, it's like music, you know, there used to be a time where you couldn't hear music, you had to listen to radio at Luxembourg in your bed, like another cliche, in your bedroom at night, and all you could ever hear were adverts, you know, as soon as the good song came, it faded, the sound went away. And you walk down the street now, you can hear music every, every footfall, there's another shop with another song blaring out of it. You know. So as a consequence, I find it impossible to listen to music at home because I've had enough of it just walking around. So do you think scarcity, to, to you, that was part of... Because I think that's true, that, that bit where you would have to search for a certain book, you would have to search for a certain Comics. kind of book, the, the quest, yeah. Try and buy a comic book in Birmingham in 1965, especially when it's a two-parter. And you know what's going to happen then, don't you? Those, those distributors, let's not bother with the second part of that story. It's only a comic. I had to go to London looking around to find comic books to read when I was a kid. You're going down to Dark They Were and Golden Eyed. Didn't exist. Well, even Dark They Were no, and no, Golden no, Eyed no, wasn't no. there. It's not in 1966. Because that's quite an early one, I think. So I know no, that, that was the first, I think. Yeah. I think when that opened, it was like... Finally, I can stop masturbating and have sex. <laughs> <laughs> There's a shop there now. But I was, one of the things I write about in my book is um, it's in Birmingham. I used to live in this little terraced house in Birmingham, and at the opposite terrace on the other side of the road was this second-hand bookshop. And and they used to do bring bring two comics back, and you get one free. Huh. So I read the first Spider-Man comic. That's lovely. Read the first Fantastic Four comic. You know that's lovely. Took them back. Came back with quotes Archie and Jughead. Mm, not so good. But you don't do that anymore, do you? <laughs> you know, I mean, if people buy comics, they buy three, don't they? One to read, one to keep, and one to just in case. <laughs> yeah. 
So you've got the, looking at the first, and we will get on to talk about your book as That's well. Your first, so, so Spike Milligan was, was your gateway into Spike Milligan. Oh, can I hold it? Do you mind? Don't let her. Josie hold it. I'm You'll never. She'll do sleight of hand. She's always oh, got a second signed, copy of Pakun. Signed by Spike Milligan, a copy of Pakun, which is in 1967. So I've had that book since then. Wow. Such a beautiful cover as well. That's the cover that I, th I don't know if it's still the cover they have, but that's the cover that I've got of it as well. Beautiful illustration. And is that the one which starts with him uh, lifting up the bin lid and looking out? I'm trying to remember which. Is no, it, that's, what, a, what, that's what, a little bit. No, that's one of his poetry books, I think. Oh, the, what, what's the opening line of Pacoon? Jo Josie, you've been put in charge. Wait, I'm being <laughs> careful with the book because. Oh, it's, it's okay. So it's readable. <laughs> this damn book nearly drove me mad. That's the forward. Yeah, yeah. Several and a half metric miles northeast of Sligo, split by a cascading stream, her body on earth, her feet in water, dwells the microce microcephalic community, a microcephalic? microcephalic community of Pakun. This June of a morning, the whole village awoke to an unexpected burst of hot weather. So was that the, reading, the so first Milligan? It's a lovely line in there about hot weather, which I think every time we have a heatwave thing, that it was so hot you could take a handful of air and squeeze the sweat out of it. Huh. Isn't that a great piece of thinking? It's beautiful, Rosie. There's some great it? jokes in there. First time I read it, I, read it, I, can remember, I can remember lying in my teenage bedroom in my mother and dad's house reading Pacoon and stopping every now and then to laugh for about 15 minutes. A regular soldier. He was known to his subordinates as, here comes the bastard now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is there something about when that, in, uh, in teenage years, when you find certain comic things and that delight, that moment of whether you're reading them yeah. or whether you're watching them on television, where you keep looking at your watch and going, oh, no, there's only three minutes left. Yeah. And that, in some ways, deciding not to do comedy, was there a point where you thought the, the return of that level of laughter is no longer possible? There is an age that we may well reach where... One of the things that happened when I stopped doing comedy was I was able to laugh at things which I wasn't able to do before because I was either angry because it was bad or angry because I hadn't thought of it first. <laughs> and so, you know, and rediscovering that laughter was... I mean, I'm serious. Mm. I mean, my, my son would tell me jokes you know, at school, he's four, and I would sit there analysing it and think, well, that's not funny. What, what can I tell him? I must have a better joke than that. <laughs> and and you, do you have this? Your, you have a, how many children do you have? I've just got one. Yeah, and yeah. I, I don't find that, but I do know what you mean in terms of. It's like my wife says that I'm much more serious now than I was, and I think maybe that's because I had. There's a point where we just it all comes out, and you have your two hours of showing off. Mm. And then because it's been so Two. exuberant or flamboyant, yeah, I overdo it, I, you oh. know, to the, the point. It, I, I literally keep going until the last one's left. Huh. And, but then there is, and so then you've given away all of that bit Maybe. and you think, I just want to go into the attic now. And I know people said about Jasper Carrot that, you know, driving to gigs, he used to always be making jokes. And then there was a point where he kind of stopped as if all the jokes were... I better keep the joke energy no, no. for yeah. when it's required. But I think it's made me a lot more bearable at parties. I think at parties before I did stand up, I was really annoying because I was so desperate. Always on. Yeah, and now to I'm a lot fair, more like, "Hello, though, nice to you see were, you." You started stand up when you were 16, so you were possibly you? annoying because you were 12, 13, or 14 <laughs> years old. Whereas for most of your life, did you start when you were 16? I did, yeah. But it was different, you know. Nowadays, you have all these young people starting in a very careerist way, but for me, it was so much a different thing. Yeah, I did start very where, young. Where were you? What kind of shows were you playing? Well, I didn't really discriminate, so anything I could get, and I. I had no idea of the difference that might potentially be between three people in a pub or 700 people. Mm. I'd be like, I'm doing a gig tonight. Mm. And I had no clue who was for real, who wasn't, who was important, who wasn't. You know, like it just, 
it was just like, oh, brilliant, a gig, I'm doing a gig. And it was kind of, I mean, it was really very lucky to have found it and to have got to be in that world because there were so many adults that I got to see mm. and come across and sort of, yeah, I got to be at a lot of performances that were quite, yeah, mind-blowing. Yeah, like, who out from those? Well, I, I remember seeing, like, I, I did a gig where Ross Noble was on, and what are you saying? No, Robin, yeah. me, oh, Robin, yes, Robin. Oh, Robin, of course, we all think that. But I remember sitting at Edit the side of the, the stage. Edit out the waving of my hands so it can be heard on the microphone. But I remember sitting at the side of the stage, it was in Madame Jojo's, and I sort of sat cross-legged because it was completely sold out, and Ross Noble was on, and I remember, like, how electric the energy in the room was, it was just kind of, like, going for it, and... Oh my god! I remember just thinking, God, I'm so lucky to be here. It's really exciting, and I saw Vic and Bob as well, and they were doing stuff together, mucking about, and yeah, loads of things like that. I just, yeah. But then but I think I overwrite my memories very... now, and I go, Oh, and I also must have seen that. But it's kind of creating a little image for myself. But that energy thing, I think that's when when it becomes such a profession. When you talk about the number of people, there are certain points. I remember when Rick Mayall died, and it was like a, oh, a reminder to me that every time you go on stage, you have to go right. They've come here, and I don't care how bored I am or whatever. No. I am going to make sure that I I show off to the maximum, and I delight in it. Which is why I kind of stopped doing stand up a lot was because I thought I'm still enjoying the the period on stage, but I, I'm beginning to wonder if that's going to disappear and I don't want to go up there and go, here's some stuff. Oh, yes. yeah. When I, when I was performing most of the time, you'd be performing to tiny, tiny audiences. I mean, seven. If That would be a good day. Seven! <laughs> and one of the mistakes I made earlier on was being unpleasant to the people who come to see me. And then someone else, Sharon Landau, a lovely performer, said, um, you're being all the other people the ones that you should be cross with, not the seven who've yeah. come. Yeah. You know, they're, they're the ones that, that you should like. You know, and it's, oh, God, of course, I've got this so badly wrong. You know. I found that with trying to do stuff about politics, suddenly being frightened of the audience because I suddenly thought, oh, they're probably all Tories and I hate this. And then going, like, no, no, these are the people that have paid because they find this idea attractive and they want to come and see it. So you don't need to worry about that. I, I, I saw Ken Dardo open the Hackney Empire when Roland and Claire Muldoon got it all back on its feet in something, 80-something. Still on. In the Hackney Ken, Empire. Ken, yeah, Ken, no. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there weren't many people in, you know, because they're hippies. And um, Ken Dodd was playing to an audience of 50 people, but he didn't care. It wasn't like he was going to go, oh, 50 people, I'll just chuck half an hour and go home. You know, yeah. he did the whole Ken Dodd thing. Yeah. And he did a couple, he did one political joke, joke, and this side of the theatre laughed. Then he did another political joke, and that side of the theatre laughed. And Ken Dodd said, I'm, said, I'm stopping now. He said, I can feel a civil war coming on. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was, because um, that's interesting as well, where there was a certain point, I suppose, of, of whether it was misreading or whatever in, in the start of what was then nailed down as alternative comedy, where people felt they weren't meant to like a whole group of comedians, which wasn't necessarily about their material. No, no. And there, there were some very inventive people, linguistically inventive, wonderful to watch for a period of time. Mm. If you'd said you were going to go and see Ken Dodd, for instance, or Les Dawson yeah, yeah. or whatever, it would be like, oh... Why are you going to well, see? You know, that moment of going, I suppose, when you, if people became punks and might have said, I'm going to see Rick Wakeman's King Arthur and the Round Table. Exactly. Gone, just, yeah, I was just about to say that. That's what the punk people did. And half the people there were slagging off, they liked it anyway. I mean, you know, yeah. Cream, you couldn't get more, you know, 45 minute guitar solos. And who does Johnny Rotten get to play in his band? Ginger Baker. So, you know. And I, that's why I do most of Ken Dodd's act if I perform now. Yeah. <laughs> I went with a friend, Arthur Smith, went, and I went to see Bernard Manning. Wow. I'd, I'd seen Bernard Manning on television, on Tiswas of all things, and he was superb because he's so enclosed on the children's television programme. There's very little Bernard Manning can do, so anything he does has a tremendous effect. You know. 
Let's go and watch Bernard Mann and see what it is like. Terrible performer. <laughs> Unbelievably bad. We stuck it out for the first half, and it was just, you know, I won't even say what he said. Loftus said to Arthur, well, what do you think? Should we go back for the second half? And Arthur Smith says, no, I think we've got the point. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's an interesting thing because there is this, you know, that everyone says he's one of the great tellers of jokes. But oh, I always no. found that when I watched him, he was doing very, you know, very professionally, but he was doing the very traditional American gag teller mm. thing. Mm. And there were there are people that you watch and you really savour the way they do jokes, or even some of the proper gag men. There's yeah. something delightful yeah. about watching the great yeah. American gag men. But that one, I, I think, is an interesting because there are many people who will, you know, Stephen Fry would always go, "Oh, he's a wonderful joke teller, isn't he?" And I'm I'm not Go sure and watch him and then tell me that. I know. I mean, I mean, I, uh, I mean, he, I admire those one line gag merchants because yeah. it's so. I mean, you have to write so many jokes, don't you, or get someone to write them for you. Bob Hope did a routine at the London Palladium, which I saw on TV, which I thought was fantastic. We talked earlier about the effort it goes into doing like a gag. And Bob, Bob Hope said, and then came the war. And the 800 soldiers rush on stage with sights going on, explosions, all this kind of stuff. It lasts for about a minute and a half, and then they all go off. And then Bob Hope says, after the war. <laughs> <laughs> all that effort for that joke, oh, well worth it. Beautiful. Yeah. So we want to talk about your book, oh. first of all. So you, you are uh, currently funny. It, it's with Unbound, isn't Unbound. it? Unbound. Unbound. And it's, uh, it's about cycling, but not merely about cycling. Not really about cycling. I mean, I go on bike rides and I talk about going on bike rides, but what I, one of the reasons I like to go on bike rides is because it frees the mind to wander off into little areas that you wouldn't normally expect to go to. So yeah. I have tried to recreate that experience for the benefit of the reader, which is the kindness I show to the world. <laughs> well, you have a wonderful thing in, in terms of on the actual page to, to uh, finance the book, yeah. and, and you're getting very near for now. The, but it has that thing where you, uh, one of the things is if, if you uh, give enough money, you will cycle to their <laughs> house. So if it's a particular distance, you'll bring the bike on the train for a while. Oh, yeah, and 20 miles away, house, I say. 20 and, then miles do away. A, uh, and then do a story about the, the, the journey yeah. in, in, the, in their front room. Yeah. Well, I'll, yeah. I know. I'll cycle to their house and I'll write a story and I'll send it to them later. Right. There's another one where I'll cycle. To, these are all threats. <laughs> you know, I will cycle to your house. Please buy my book, or I will cycle to your house and do forty-five minute reading of it. So yeah, various. A few people have bought those. Why? Why did you decide now? What? What? What was it that you thought? I'm, I want to write this story now. I want to write my story. Sixty-five. Got to retire at sixty-five. No, I'm starting work. Did that feel like a very uh, momentous age coming up? Did it feel like there were nah, lots of no nah. sixty-one? I found sixty-one a bit. Hang on a second. I've coped with all the other ones, but. 61, there's definitely a trajectory here. <laughs> and it's not pointing up, is it? It's down, down, down. Yeah, 61 is a bit of an odd, odd one. But otherwise, it's been fine. And 65 is great. Good bus passes, haircuts are half price. Ooh, Lots of nice. benefit to me, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> with that billiard ball, ball head. But so, no, no, that's not a concern of mine. But yeah, I was, I'd spent 10 years doing what I wanted to do, i.e. nothing. And then when I came to 65, I thought, well, I think now's the time to, A, write something and also to start performing it, which is good. Do you occupy nothing with anything or is it an attempt to create a solitude and nothingness? Solitude is an interesting experience. This is what I experienced because I went away for about 10 years coming back for, and then going off again yeah. with a tent. And it was so nice to have solitude. 
Hang on, so over that 10-year period, what you would do is go off on your own with the tent to, like, wild places? No, no, no. I haven't. I've got, I've, no, just Holland and France and Ireland and wow. then better do Land's End to John O'Groats. It's supposed to be, That's terrible, terrible bike ride. It's horrible. Huh. You go through all the worst parts. Of, well, there's nothing nice in England anyway. So you're biking on your own. <laughs> I agree. Oh, Scotland is so much better than England. Well, Wales France is so, is so much, better, much than better than England. Yeah. I'm going to live in France soon, I hope. So you were cycling on your own. You did yeah. like, and and is the book a kind of summary of loads well, of? There's one easy way to find out. Ha! The book is, I think I try to weave the cycle stories yeah. with the showbiz memories, or or the this happened to me when I was twenty kind of thing. And uh, so yeah, so, but that's what happens when you ride a bike. If 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 it's nice and peaceful and quiet, not on the A37 in Yarmouth or whatever it might be, <laughs> where it's just lorry drivers thinking that's a target. Mm. Uh, yeah, but on a nice, quiet country road, cycling, ambling along, and then you know, where did where did I how did I end up here in my mind? You know, which is like one of the things I like about good stand-up shows is that they take you as and it, it's, like Peter Kay starts off with a couple of old jokes or newish jokes or whatever kind of jokes he might be. Then ten minutes later, you're in a playground at school thinking, how did, how did we get here all of a sudden? You know, it's, and I find that an absolute delight. You know, to, yeah. to, to watch that kind of thing. I was going to say, on the travel books, did you ever read any John Hillaby? No. John Hillaby, who was a travel writer and one Don't of my favourite... do fav- hills on bikes. <laughs> um, the, uh, because he is a hill, he doesn't have to actually go up them. He sees it as, <laughs> as, as, a, as, as a clash of ideologies. Don't or, or names, always his, work. Um, but he, he wrote a book called Journey Through Britain, which was in the late 60s. Right. And it's quite interesting because it is at a time of momentous change in terms mm. of as the high street changed. And he's quite aware that many of the shops he's seeing and the small independent things are on their way out. But there's a lovely bit where he probably bought yours. He talks about, I'd never known this, J.B. Priestley line, which I think comes from English Journey or Phrase, which is Skull Cinema. And he would talk about the point when you're walking and it may well oh, be the right, point when you're cycling right. yeah, and yeah. you go into your Skull yeah, Cinema yeah, yeah, yeah. and what pictures are playing, what images are going on. Yeah, yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. Whatever happened to J.B. Priestley? Did he do anything after that? Skull Cinema? No, because yeah. he took it a little bit too far when he... Well, he never uh, came out of his mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've got... Let's have a look at some of the books that you brought with you. Well, this is my, one of my favourite authors, Eleanor Lippmann, who writes romantic comedies. And this is a book of her um, essays and things like that. But what's great about this is when I first started reading her s- stuff, my, she's written about ten books. And they're all, they're all like... They should be film starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. But they're very witty and funny. And always with a happy ending, and then you can have a quiet cry in your shed, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but my son, uh, I, I was forcing these books on my, on my family, and my son went to America on a sort of gap year thing, saw Eleanor Rip- Lippman was doing a book reading, went up there, got a book, and said, and could you make that out to my mother? Because he thought, romantic comedy, must be something, my, his mother is the least romantic comedy person in the world. Oh, she's very good. So he goes back with his damn book and gives it to his mum. I'm going, that's my book. <laughs> that's, you know, should belong to me, you know. Genuinely, cross it up. And then a year later, he goes back to New York on another gap year project thing. And she's doing another reading in a bookshop somewhere. He goes up, tells her the story, and she fights to John. Arthur now, my son's called Arthur. Arthur now understands that he was the one who found. And that's in that book there, I think. I was hoping you managed to actually take the same copy back and go, awfully sorry, I came back. I'm here you go. I just read the first paragraph because like any book, like you just read the first paragraph. I was just looking at it the other day, well, before I came here. It says, uh, I came late 
No, that's not it. <laughs> that is what. No, no, sorry. Moving on. First, first story in her book is about her mother. And it goes, uh, There are several things I know by heart, acquiring no notes or source material, mostly along practical gastronomic lines. You add a fistful of dried split green peas and a parsnip to the water that will become your chicken soup. You don't overbeat the milk and eggs, lest your custard not set. And when making latkes, you always grate the onion before the potatoes so the glop does not turn pink. <laughs> Don't you think that's just... That's one of the I like any book that sneaks in uh, recipe hints as well. It's the Once fact you that you're enjoying it. Um... Heartburn. Heartburn? Uh, oh, who is it? By Nora Ephron. Yeah. Oh, right, have you, have right, you read right. it? Not yet, not yet. No. Uh, it's fantastic, but it's... it's um. It's so romantic, and obviously she's the writer of uh, When Harry Met Sally and like, yeah, 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 a few I'll massive romantic comedies. And but Heartburn is so beautiful and so sad and so funny yeah. and right, but well, also has all these recipes into it. Well, that, she doesn't do much on the recipe front because she's talking about her mother there. And, yeah. uh, her, her mother's hatred of condiments. Ha. And when her mother becomes senile or whatever it is, Alzheimer's, she's at home, and the author has to go along to the nurse and say, "Do not, under any circumstances, give my mother ketchup." <laughs> no mayonnaise, not even in a salad. So, her mother goes balmy because she sees her daughter putting uh, vinaigrette on a tomato. What's wrong with a tomato as it is? Kind of. But I mean, I just what I like about Eleanor Lippman's writing is when I read it, I cry and laugh at the same time, which is my yardstick now. Yeah, I cry and laugh at the same time. It's like the and she fun. writes in there, but sorry about her husband who uh, has some kind of brain thing and goes away. You know. Eventually dies, and she writes about him so beautifully and so lovingly. Wow. So, so yes, he's very high on my list. Who for you is it? Because I, I think it's quite a hard thing for to to create in, in in reading something that is so moving, something that is so. And there are certain. I'm trying to think. There was one that I was reading, but that. Uh, um, so, who for you are the other people where you think I'm going to read that because I know that somewhere in there there will be joy, and then Terry I will Pratchett. Be... I get a lot a lot of that from Terry Pratchett. And maybe it's just me, but you know he's got his science fiction reputation, which I think is totally. I mean, I've got nothing against science fiction, but I think he, he paints a broader canvas. But a lot of his stuff makes me cry and laugh at the same time. Mm. So I think it's because when it, when people that write address simple humanity in a in a courteous and pleasant way, I think that's that's important. Oh God, yeah, yeah. Actually, there, there thinking a... that somebody's sensibility is warm and genuine and prepared to be vulnerable. Yeah, I think. You, I yeah. just have no time for reading things where I'm like, yeah, I get it. You're very clever and you're very <laughs> sarcastic. Yes, yes, I get it. I want someone who's like, I am willing to do this. Yeah. 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 Annie's Box, which is, uh, I think it's got a different name now, but it's by Randall Keynes, who is a great, great, great grandchild, yeah. I think, of Charles Darwin. And he, he had this little box of stuff and it turned out it included the letters uh, between Charles Darwin and his wife, Emma, uh, Building up to the death of of their daughter Annie, and oh. then afterwards, and and the writing, <laughs> I've got to say the uh, you know we were saying you were talking about Kent before, and of course you know Downhouse, the writing that was going back and forth between yep, you know, in the Mulvans where she was having this treatment, which of course ended up being futile, but it appeared yeah. that it might do something. And yeah. Emma's at home, and Charles Darwin's there with Annie, and it's just there is that just the beauty. I mean, there's much beautiful writing between the the two of them. That's and and there's an incredible yeah it's I, I would highly recommend Annie's box which is predominantly a biography of of Charles Darwin uh, but or has quite a lot taken from this box that he you know this this uh, and um, I'll just go home and make a box now. <laughs>
It's Funny, so... I knew somebody who was dying. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know, it's me. <laughs> Dear me. Oh, this is one of my favourite books. This is The Warlock of Love by Mark Bolden. Oh, wow. that's a great one. I don't know that at all. Even the font is so timely. Everything you've brought is signed by the author. Well, these are the ones. This one isn't. These are the ones that I've kept for a long time. I've had that since 1960. Wow. That is a real. Even his writing I mean, what is a treasure cool. too. Even his well, individual. That's what I think. So where did you meet? Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it looks, the writing has that kind of, the, the, the harshness of the angles of the letters is, is all but ready all... to be a font of an album for some, yeah. yeah, yeah. This is like, what's that one? It's the Tyrannosaurus Rex album. Yeah. Wizards, Seers and Sages of the Ages? Prophet, is that what it's called? Seers and Sages, Sorry. the Angels of the Ages. Would you please get it? It spends half an hour thinking up these titles. <laughs> Prophet, Seers and Sages, the Angels of the Ages. Yeah, and the previous one was, the first album we did of Tyrannosaurus Rex was called My People Were Fair and Had Sky in Their Hair, but now they're content to wear stars on them. Their brows. Oh, and the woman God. in boots says, "Sorry, what? <laughs> my people were fair." And has, you know, What's lovely is the way you read that, though. Also has a Milligan-esque feel. Is it? Yeah. I must go down to the sea again, <laughs> the, uh, which I mustn't say because I know that they actually don't ever. I once wanted to use a bit of Milligan on, on I think it was on quote unquote, and really? the estate just no, you're not allowed to really? in any way Come enjoy on. Spike Milligan huh? unless you've paid the correct amount of money. Oh, exactly. Uh, so but this is... record was my mum only had about thirty records yeah. when I was a kid, and that record was one of well, the ones I, love that I stole. I yeah. love your mother. You stole her record. Oh yeah, I stole it. Oh, I still right. got it. I wrote a little piece about him for this website thing, and I said, "Tyrannosaurus Rex." are the only band whose records, when they're played backwards, sound exactly the same. <laughs> so how did you... Did you, you met him then? No. Um, he, I went to a concert. I never, never met him. And he, he was advertising the programme, Mark Bolden's first book of poetry. He's available now. Send a postal order. For... Oh, and he sent it So out. I sent off my postal order, and it took a while, and then it came back, and I was cross because it was late, and then it came and it had been signed. Oh, I'm not cross anymore. <laughs> so I've had that, had that a long time. That really uh, beats my sending off for a copy of House of Hammer, issue number one, signed by the editor Des Skin, okay. which I don't name believe... Name uh, Yeah, I know, I'm always name-dropping Des Skin. The, uh, um, I, that's beautiful. But this is... So what was it about Mark Boland then? Again, we're talking this is... Uh, so this would probably be in the same year you'd been same, sitting yeah, yeah, room yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. First you go and see Spark Milligan live, then you buy your Mark Boland book of poetry. Oh, it's a big life in Birmingham in 1967, like. Uh, yeah, well, again, you see, one of the things I like about where you're talking at the very beginning of this interminable conversation about alternative comedy and what, and I was thinking, well, you know, it's just people doing things that I like. It's when you're 16 or 17, you've just left school, you don't know what to do, and you know what you don't want to do, which is what I was doing, which is working WH Smith, which is all right. But what you do want to do is what, but find out what it is you want to do. Excuse me for babbling. And then when you see individual people doing something that nobody else does, then you think, oh, well, I should go off and do something that nobody else does or try to mm -hmm. at least, you know. Yeah. So I find, although, I mean, I tend to like one-off individuals of one kind or another, and so, rather than group identities, because like anybody can be in a band, but it's hard work to do it on your own. Yeah. Well, this is what I, I wonder. I won't, not, I'm not going to talk too long about this because I know that the, the time has, has passed on that. But well, it's okay because I'm not really of, interested in reading from my book. But um, Philip K. Dick, yeah. uh, you, you were influenced by him. And also, just before we came in the studio, you, you mentioned the Illuminatis trilogy and, yeah, and yeah. Robert Anton Wilson, whose, yeah. whose books are all being republished now. I think his family have got the rights back to them. And oh, um, what was it about things like the Illuminatis? We, we briefly mentioned Ken Campbell as well. Oh, well, yeah. I think, yeah. 
I had a nice, nice relationship with Ken Campbell briefly, just a few little some workshops. He did this wonderful thing when I first met him. Was um, he was obviously broke, and then he thought, well, I'll just organise some. Everyone could. It's like Simon D or uh, huh. not Simon D, uh, David Frost. Everyone can do the accent. Everyone can do an impression <laughs> of Ken Campbell, and he organised these workshops of improvisation workshops. And it was 10 quid to go along to the workshop. I that's great, 10 quid. That's, you know, and it's two hours in the company of Ken Campbell. And I get to it, it was in his house. He had a big basement room in his house. And, it, and I'm thinking, well, how are you going to ask, ask for the money? And he said, right, before we start, let's just get the money sorted out. Here's my tenner. <laughs> 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 All right, there's yours. Well, here's mine. And, 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 and he had 100 quid. And he sorted, for, and then he does, you know, he does a decent work. But he's the other side of it that was kind of impertinent was he was trying out this idea he had anyway, and seeing how it worked with actors. Some actors did it well, some actors did it not, not so well. But you know, he found out more and more about the idea he had. So he's getting his hundred quid. He's secretly getting his own stuff, and he's secretly getting his own material and his own ideas sorted. And it's, and it's like, well, that's a very nice way to earn a living. And but also, know, that shows. Oh no, sorry, uh-huh. but like. The idea that he's still receptive and still wanting to learn and still wanting to get things from it makes it all the better, I think. Oh, yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. There was a lovely thing happened in a rehearsal room because having got the idea started, he then took it to a group of professional actors and dragged a few comedians, myself, a guy called Mac McDonald, along, you know, we all sort of worked on these ideas together. And then one day actors came into the rehearsal room and said, oh, Ken, I went to see a Stephen Burkhoff play the other day. You can see King Campbell sort of going, yeah, I don't know if I like Burkhoff, but I'm not going to say anything bad about him. Right? Yeah. <laughs> he said, and I mentioned uh, him to you, and we're all thinking, yes, yeah, Steve Burkhoff, what would he think about Ken Campbell? Hmm, interesting. And then and King said, oh, yeah, and then the actor said, yeah, and I mentioned him, uh, you to Steve Burkhoff, Ken, and Ken Campbell said, what I like about Stephen Burkhoff is he's always remained true to his own principles. And then the actor said, that's exactly what Burkhoff said about you, Ken. So I thought, oh, there's a meeting of minds. Well, it's funny with things like that where you imagine people wouldn't have even heard of each other somehow. And then it's like, yeah. So they had their own world, because most of them were making their own theatrical... I mean, they may all be the same sun, but they're totally different planets. Yes, yeah. These, well, that was one of the things you, you, that I saw recently, which uh, uh, I, th- I can't remember where the link you sent me the link. I think, which is that interesting of you and Ken Campbell uh, defending with Vallis. Mariella Frostrup, which was Brave New World <laughs> versus Philip K. Dick's Vallis. I know. What, which, what's better, an orange or a, a washing powder? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> meaningless debates, number twenty-seven. Do right. you like so? Is Vallis, if you, um, in terms of Philip K. Dick, which, as we we said, we had a little bit of back and forth on the, which is, it's not an easy book. No. And it's not a book, because it doesn't feel like a novel, it it feels uh, very different to, but it is fascinating. And you said your first experience with Vallis was like, eh? As a friend of mine said, you've got to read this. So I, to, I, I didn't realise it was a suggestion. I thought I was under orders. And I just read it relentlessly. Day after day after day, and I think, well, got to the end of it. I thought, well, why did I have to read that? And then, ping, a light bulb goes off on your, in your head, and you, and and a door is open that wasn't open before, and then something has changed. I don't even think Philip K. Dick knew what, what was going on. So yes, I mean, and then I read all some more, and a lot, a lot of his other books are a lot easier to read, and some of the ones that weren't published are very easy to read. Um. And then I thought, I've got to do a show about Philip K. Dick. He'd been dead some while. I've got to do a show about Philip K. Dick. And because of my comedy experience, the only thing I can write is a one-man show. So I'll have to write a one-man show about Philip K. Dick. Right, well, how, how do you start? Well, I'd better read them all, hadn't I? Huh. 
And I had to find every Philip K. Dick book and the short stories and the articles he'd written and, you know, whatever it might be, just in case there's a line in there I need, you know. Once I'd finished, that put me off reading for life, virtually. I mean, did you read the? Cause at that point, I mean, I know the actual, the longer version. Even then, it's a severely truncated version of the exegesis. There was a shortish version yeah, done by um, Divine Evasions. Uh, yeah, Philip Suiting, Lawrence Suiting. Yeah, I could forget. Yeah, it's yeah. Suiting. That yeah, that. I think it was Lawrence Suiting. So, because that would have really, uh, and that's what I can imagine. Though, with Philip, you can see how people can turn him into some form of, of, of deity or seer. Because you could just go, "Oh, well, I'll just stay with this from now on. I'm just going to reread the exegesis oh, over and over well, again." If you had that kind of thinking, you probably deserve that kind of punishment. <laughs> but no, you only had excerpts from the exegesis, which is like a, you just used to sit down, right, night after night after night, on various drugs quite often, and then somebody somebody decided to publish them. Uh, and it's, but, it's basically what happened when he saw the the uh, the, the the pink light, wasn't it? It was yeah, he had had this experience which became to him very mystical. And like much of his stuff, you never quite know which was kind of oh, we can start making um, this is not real. This like the the breaking in the house, which is there's an interesting new book in fact from Oxford University Press, which is kind of just looking at the uh, the psychology of Philip K. Dick. And I remember the title eventually. <laughs> we have one final book uh, in in the part, and this one is. <laughs> you want me for to those of you listening we've done three takes of this because <laughs> something's gone wrong so that's why we're now creating the illusion of spontaneity oh, ah! that's a nice book over there that we've not talked oh, about have I not yet. talked about this book yet it's Ooh. called Robin Hood by Carolla Oman and it's oh, a lovely not that one looking again. edition the knight stared back at him my castle is an Uttersdale of whom do you speak bless my soul sir gasped the little archer haven't they ever heard in Uttersdale of Robin Hood <laughs> Yeah, but as I said, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just. She wrote, she wrote, she wrote this book, and it's almost poetry in the way that the phrases that, and, and things that she lo- lo- uses. And I'm just picking it, opening it at random, which is one of my favourite towns in Leicestershire. Mm. And he left behind him three thoughtful outlaws. For as he mounted his steed, he looked long at Will Scarlet, who was holding the fine beast, and said, "Surely, good squire, we have met before." Will, who stood a stout six feet, gave him look for look and answered quietly, Never, my lord. Something going on there. Tune in next week to find out what. Yeah, you have to go to the Birmingham comic <laughs> shop to see if we've got part two available. Um, thank you so much, John, for joining us. Can we, can we uh, just, so uh, for people who want to know more about your book, The, Un- the Unbound Book, uh, yeah. where should they go? Um, they should go to the Unbound website, unbound.com, I think it is. Unbound, just type John Dowry, Unbound. Great story I've finished with as a pulp fiction writer who was writing a series of serials for uh, pulp fiction comic books in the 1940s or 50s. And he's leaving on Friday and the new guy starts on Monday. So he sits in a writing trap and the hero is in a pit, which is unscalable, surrounded by evil tribesmen with spears and so forth who are going to, you know, kill him. Tune in next week to see what happens next. Next day, the, writer, the new writer comes along, reads that, he goes, with one bound, he was free. <laughs> <laughs> that do. is the incredible thing. Some of those pulp writers who wrote an enormous amount and you hear, how did they manage to do it? And you go, there's in fact one, I wish I remember the name, Alan Moore is just outside. We'll, well, I'll, do you know, hang on a minute. I'll just... Uh, <laughs> just put your I've head forgotten the name of that bloke. Watch out of your mic. Just be right back. Don't go yet, John. All right. Hello. I went to see a live show and it was you and somebody else and it was when I was about 17 years old. All right. I'm not sure... Who you were with? Was it a man or a woman? It was a man. Double two-hander or, 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 or two-hander. 
When were you, when were that, when were you 17 then? Uh, 17 years ago. Can't imagine. Um, when I first started doing stand-up. Was it a guy called Tony Harzer, a big tall guy? Maybe. Doing a show about new so, age. Sorry. I feel so embarrassed that I can't remember it. It's well, really it's shows a lot it's a hot enough room. To remember that I enjoyed it. And, oh, that, good. and it's really frustrating to me because I... I feel embarrassed, and I have no Are record right? of what it was either. But Hello. I know. Much as I have. Oh my god! The uh, the person I was going to mention about in terms of pulp writing, where you just go, you can. We did. I used to do a little game with uh, Alan Moore at the one of the the, the cafes, the NN Cafe in Northampton, where we do this thing where you have pass around. You have three copies of uh, uh, well, three different Harry Harry uh, Stephen Keeler books, and you just keep reading them. And then when the audience shout change, the next person starts reading another one in a totally different place, and they all link <laughs> because there's just somehow the, the detail always connects bizarre John Dowie thank you very much Pleasure. go and uh, if you haven't funded uh, John Dowie's book yet it's going to be uh, a very interesting book and uh, I think he's already given away his tent so you won't be able to I've win given the, away tent. the tent but a free car with every book so there we go the uh, <laughs> that's um, a great deal so thank you very much to John Dowie. Remember, uh, if you enjoy the podcast, you don't even enjoy it that much, but you have a lot of money you just want to get rid of for some kind of tax purposes, then you can kind of, well, sponsor us almost. I don't uh, think Patreon a... would be a tax write-off, to be honest. No, it probably wouldn't be a tax write-off, would it? But well, don't tell them that. Oh, you could say it was research. Yeah, just say, anyway, look, there, I'm sure there's a way you can get your money back from this if, if you want to. I mean, not the money you've given us. Look, this is getting too complex. So the thing is, uh, if you would like to support the podcast so we can keep it going, then uh, you can do this via Patreon for as little as $1 per episode, because it's an American company. And uh, you'll also get exclusive bonus episodes. Uh, every week we give out a bag of books, etc., etc., etc. If you'd like to make a one-off donation for any amount whatsoever, then you can do that through PayPal, and you don't need to have a PayPal account and all episodes reading lists and donation links are available from cosmicgenome.com forward slash you don't have to say forward slash more people just know don't they yeah. slash shambles and you can also leave a review on itunes if you'd like so uh for this john dowie episode we'd like to thank eleanor only eleanor that's all we know uh jay honosutomo uh victoria latham matthew coldwell julian willis Andy McClellan. Andy McClellan. That's nice, isn't it? Oh, thanks, Andy. He's a brilliant comedian from Australia. You should check him out. And a great indie DJ. Bertie Luckins. Bertie Lukins, maybe. Sorry. Lucy Chapman, Mark Parker and Marcus James. Thank you so much. And today I'm very pleased to say that the uh, Patreon supporter who wins a big box of books is Nick Hurley. And if you were the winner of our Patreon Box of Books prize, then the best way to get in contact with us is either via our Twitter account, which is at Cosmic Genome, or you can go to cosmicgenome.com slash shambles, have a look on that page, and you'll be able to contact us there so we can get your address and send the books to you. Thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. (laughs) 